Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Not to be overly dramatic about these things, but I was in the emergency room with a family member who got really sick, this awful salmonella poisoning, but it just got worse. And um, I'm sitting there and we're just waiting for a doctor to come. It's like, you know, sitting there seven hours or something. It's just crazy the way healthcare works in America right now. And I'm checking my email and... uh, an email comes in, oh, you've got a new you know, subscriber to Team Human, someone from the UK at the five pound level. I don't know, somehow when I see people come in with other currencies, it just makes me feel good about what we're doing. And it came in in a really, in a handy time and just reminded me of, uh, uh, of the support of this community. And, and rather than just kind of reaching out and begging for more money, I want to, um, you know, thank those of you who are uh, part of this community and make this, uh, make this whole project possible and support not just our show, Team Human, but kind of support the, the idea of, of Team Human in the process. So um, this week, I want to thank uh, Cameron Kim, Darius Irvin, Kenny Asher, Stephen Weinstein, uh, Christine Van Look, uh, for being members of Team Human. And you can, too. Um, just go to teamhuman.fm or to patreon.com slash teamhuman and uh, click on support to uh, get access to our Discord, um, free links to Medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and all sorts of other team-only perks, including our, our Discord and uh, the live Team Human salons that happen on there. Our next Team Human salon, I had to cancel the last one because of this uh, illness that happened, but our next one will be uh, Friday, April 28th. 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's uh, noon California and 8 p.m. in the UK on April 28th. See you then. You're on Team Human. 
conscious intervention in the machine, an opportunity to recenter human experience as a factor in the creation of reality. We are not just perceiving some stuff out there, we are actively constructing meaning. Only truly living things, conscious beings can do this. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, three people thinking deeply about the role of artificial intelligence in our lives. John Borthwick, Claire Leibowitz, and Justin Hendricks. What is ChatGPT? Is it an information intermediary? Is it a publisher? Are you the information provider when you enter a prompt into a ChatGPT box? Um, How will the law uh, consider those things? Together on a panel discussion we did for a graduate course in New York City, we'll be trying to come up with some guiding principles for the future of AI. It's time to intervene on behalf of all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've been teaching in the media studies department at CUNY Queens College for the past, gosh, uh, eight years. And this coming fall, I'm going to become the new director of the graduate program, where we've been focused on media studies scholarship in the context of social change and social justice. It's been fun and enriching, but increasingly people have been asking for something more hands-on or embedded in community or expressed in the form of performing arts or media activism. And luckily, um, the folks in the drama, theater, and dance department, Yinmei Critchell, a friend of mine in particular, they've been thinking along the same lines. So we're going to be joining forces to pilot a new master's track in media, arts, and performance beginning next fall, I guess as like kind of like a pilot program. And I suppose what what I'm doing is inviting you to join us. I mean, most basically, it's a a master's program for media makers, whether they're media technicians or or actors or dancers or writers, directors, technicians, um, set costume designers, activists, even scholars just interested in performance and media as a form of social practice or activism or community building. It's going to be for, for people who, who work in the performing arts or arts education or media arts or arts activism or performing arts scholarship, I'm, I guess I'm thinking of it, you know, what if we started a program for people who aspire to be the next Reverend Billy or Yes Men or Ali Ferzad or Media Ninja or Jenny Holzer or Elevator Repair Service or Museum of Morbid Anatomy or or Dr. Charmel Bell or Amelia Winger Bearskin or San Francisco Mime Troupe, right? Less for performers and artists who want to headline at Lincoln Center than those who want to discover and promote the, the untold stories of an underrepresented community, you know? So it's it's less for a filmmaker who wants to make the next Marvel blockbuster than one who wants to experiment with new narrative structures that don't reinforce existing hierarchies. Less for a technologist who wants to use AI to create convincing special effects than someone who wants to reveal the hidden biases of AI through uh, live improvisation or interactive installations. 
I guess we're going to specialize in the integration of media arts and performance. So uh, interactive theater or an online performance or augmented reality and dance or performative media. So the overall focus is going to remain, it's going to remain on media studies and social justice and cultural change and racial equality and representation and climate and economic equality and media activism, but particularly focused on working with with artists and performers and media makers who care about all these sorts of issues. I think it's going to be fun. You know, it's going to be small, right? It's a little program. Not many people are going to come do this. Not many people have the time or money to study like this. So I'm going to make it have these kind of broad scope courses. So there'll be like a course uh, in a, in a, an area like media archaeology or a big performance practicum or a workshop in media and performance so that each person can bring their own work or their line of inquiry to the, to the table. So a course in media archaeology might let one student explore the archived history of dance in 1930s China and someone else is going to study game and simulators of the 1990s, and someone else is going to research maybe uh, preserved occult technologies of the theosophists. So the courses become these containers for doing independent work together. And luckily, because this is a public university, the cost of an MA through CUNY is really, it's like an order of magnitude less than one of those private puppy mills. So if you're thinking of getting a degree, or even if you're not looking for education or a degree, but still want to play, feel free to get in touch once we've launched in September, because we're going to be running a colloquium series for artists and scholars and media activists just to share their work with the community and get feedback and workshop ideas and all that. And And I don't really just mean this as an ad, although it is a come, come, <laughs> come join us. Uh, but, but rather... You know, I just spent the last week or two grading a stack of undergraduate papers, and almost half of them were written by chat GPT. I kid you not. And it made me really sad about teaching. I was just like, screw this. What? Why the heck am I sitting here reading AI written papers and then trying to decide what to do about it? But instead of giving up, it, it kind of made me want to double down. And I started thinking long and hard about people who end up in courses of study for all the wrong reasons, which is the only reason they'd be using an AI to write their paper. And it got me thinking even more about trying to create the kind of program where no one would even think to delegate their assignments to an AI platform. I mean, what is that? Or if they did do it, it would be for fun, subversive reasons. The same sorts of reasons that would inspire the renegades and spoil sports and interventionists who would think to come and play with me in this new program. I guess we'll see. Honestly, this hasn't happened yet. And whatever does happen will depend on who shows up. I'm just hoping that includes some of you. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the other reason I thought to share about all this with you is because the, the show this week I actually recorded at a, a panel we did for a, a class. So I wanted to share it with you. It's a, it's a class that's actually combining students from Cornell Tech and Columbia Journalism and SEPA schools and NYU's Interactive Telecommunications Program and Parsons Design and Technology Program, along with the scrappy crew at the Queens College Media Studies Program. So it's not just us, but the course is called Tech, Media, and Democracy. And it looks at, well, the crisis and possibilities of technology and media for democracy. The course began in response to all the fake news and bots and things that influenced the 2016 election, but it has since evolved into a less frantic, more considered approach to building tech that enables intelligent, inclusive democratic participation. It's ultimately a hands-on experience with students developing prototype technologies and platforms aimed at doing news and elections better than we do right now. And this conversation is about the impact of what we first called synthetic media on our civics. Originally, uh, when we were teaching this course, we met, you know, deep fakes and bots, but today it means artificial intelligence, which is like the story of the year, right? So we invited two great guests, uh, John Borthwick, who's the founder of Betaworks, a lab and incubator responsible for tons of interesting technologies, including Giphy and Dots, all sorts of things. And he's now working and investing in the AI space. And we also invited Claire Leibowitz, who's head of the AI and Media Integrity Program at the Partnership on AI. It's called a PAI. Um, and in her spare time, she's a doctoral candidate at Oxford. Also on the panel is one of our instructors for the course, Justin Hendricks, who's also the editor of Tech Policy Press. And I'm serving as the moderator. And I didn't realize it at the time, and this is really the reason why I, I decided to, to play it for you, but as you'll hear, it's as much a team human conversation as any there was. I guess it's just everything I do. I can't help it. I'm human. <laughs> Take a listen. So 
I thought we would start this conversation about really synthetic and uh, uh, autonomous media, if we want to even call it that, with Emily Bell's uh, brief article she wrote. She wrote an op-ed in, uh, I don't know if we call them op-eds anymore, an opinion piece in Guardian of London, where she argued that a basically that AI is a platform that mimics human writing with no commitment to the truth, and as such, it is a gift to those who would benefit from disinformation. Not just that they're gonna write uh, wrong articles, but that because it's AI, that there's a bigger problem than deep fakes, which is the ability to just flood the zone and make it basically impossible for people to find real information in a sea of uh, automatically generated disinformation. So looking at that, I mean, at, at that critique, and I guess the, the real question of how will these technologies impact democracy and journalism, I was hoping that I could get from, from all of you uh, sort of your opening uh, thoughts on, on this threat as a uh, as voiced by, by uh, Emily. Maybe uh, start with Claire. Sure, and I may just spend 30 seconds explaining a bit of the vantage point with which I approached the question that you posed really nicely. So the Partnership on AI is a global, multi-stakeholder nonprofit devoted to a huge mandate of responsible AI. And we were founded a little over five years ago by the heads of AI research at some of the largest technology companies. So Facebook at the time, Apple, Amazon, DeepMind, IBM, Google, and Microsoft. But very notably, all of these computer scientists grew up together in the field, kind of going to the same conferences, and felt that all the societal challenges transcend any one industry. So the ACLU is involved. So too is um, you know Amnesty International and lots of civil society organizations, over 100 partners. So we work with them to interrogate a lot of the issues. And the program I lead is focused on a huge question too, which is how we have a healthy information ecosystem in the AI age. So I think to your point, and I think I was hearing like which modality matters the most, um, we have been actually quite focused on generative media. And I think this kind of, is it going to be deep fakes or is it going to be generative text that causes more chaos is sometimes, um, I don't want to say besides the point in terms of investment, but many of these systems can contribute to the broader societal question of people believing what is true and what is not. And I think more deeply about what does it, what responsibility do we have to communicate to audiences that something is generated or not? I think at a fundamental level as well. I continue to feel there are both, and I'm sure you've all heard this, there are immense opportunities from the technology as well that, um, you know, while disinformation is one issue in journalism, you might also see, I think the BBC really recently used deep fake technology specifically to obfuscate faces of Hong Kong protesters and report more truthfully on that story. So that's an instance in journalism, kind of the same institution might be deeply nervous about someone um, simulating how the BBC journalists tell stories or, um, you know, sending in a piece of evidence to inform reporting that is actually untrue or, or AI generated and false, but at the same time, they can use that technology. So I think as with all technologies, there's both intense capacity for good and intense capacity for harm and across modalities and also um, some of the interventions that you, you choose need to kind of attend to both of those, which we'll talk about probably as you guys opine in more depth. Yeah, John, I'm hoping you can kind of share where, where your 
kind of the kind of the primary concern when it comes to uh, AI and uh, and, and uh, our media consumption? So, um, I mean, I think that the you know the the world's changed radically in the last six months, um, but it's it's really taken about 10 years to get to this point. Um, I think that the, the fact that we have a, an interface into a computer m machine generated, that's, I, I'm going to use, use the word intelligence, but I want to use that carefully because I think that the tendency that we have to impute that, uh, that an intelligence on behalf, look, my calculator is intelligent. It does math that I can't do. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's a human form of intelligence. But we have a conversational interface now into uh, this uh, system. And I think it mimics a uh, human uh, interface incredibly well. And I think that that is uh, that's a that's a profound change in how we use computers, because you know the way that I think, if you think about the sort of evolution of you know accessing a computer from you know sort of the Finder and the basic operating system interface, moving you know to the web, moving to the social web or the search web, and then moving to the uh, social web. I think we have now a new interface into computing, which is conversational. And, um, and that is, it's such, it's so human. And the, the, I know this seems like a small point, but I think the voice that it's, that OpenAI have given it with ChatGPT is so assertive and uh, that it's, uh, you know, it, it's going to radically change journalism and it's going to, I think it's already impacting uh, pretty much every domain in society. So I'm really glad that we're having this conversation and that, you know, I think we need to dig through and understand exactly, you know, how we want to integrate this into society and where, you know, what, it, what is real and what isn't. Because it's, uh, you know, this, this interface, it's eerily, human, but it is not human and it's not real and it's not uh, based on fact. It's just a prediction engine. Right. Right. Which is a, just a different behavior for us. We're used to going to Google and getting, these are the results. And now you go in and get the result. The result is not that it found this information. The result is it's going, let's try this, right? Yes. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a different thing. I'm going to skip you for a moment because yeah. you were just, you just asked the question as, as Emily. Um, so Claire, you're, I want to understand, and we'll get, I mean, you, you have such a, a strong voice. You, you can wait one moment. You put in ChatGPT uh, in the style of Emily Bell. <laughs> there you <answers>. go. <laughs> it turns out. I'm so sick of those articles. Yeah. You know, Sorry, I made the joke, but for him it would be funny. I know, everybody's done. I did one. Everyone's done one. Um, so you're working on what we're calling media integrity and on a code of practice for how organizations can responsibly use synthetic media. What, if you can share, what does that entail? Great question. So um, a little over four years ago, our community identified this question of AI-generated 
media and specifically disinformation potential is one really ripe for cross-sector collaboration. And we hosted, I'll just start with some institutional history. We hosted a convening um, co-led by the BBC and Witness, which is a really wonderful Brooklyn-based but all over the world nonprofit devoted to the power of video to speak truth to power and citizen journalism, et cetera. And we hosted a workshop before deepfakes were as trendy as they are today. And that week, a video of Nancy Pelosi went viral, which um, was merely slowed down. And there's this whole group of people who are eager to talk about AI-generated material in a room debating the difference between this shallow fake or a non-AI manipulated video where all of us could, with no technical skill set, slow down a video and sow discord or, you know, doubt and what it means for how we govern actual AI manipulations and what does that mean for us as a field in terms of how we consider the difference between this new moment in technology. So over the past four years, we've built a coalition of these institutions that, let me just tell you, do not disagree, <laughs> agree, excuse me, all the time on what, you know, normative recommendations mean for building synthetic media responsibly but we worked over the past year in this kind of Russian doll-esque model of drafting where you work with all these diverse institutions ranging from open AI and engineers there and also trust and safety teams. Because meaningfully, when we talk about media integrity, it's both artifacts of media and institutions. So bringing in the BBC, the CBC, and we worked over the course of the year to put forth a piece of AI governance that is um, kind of a voluntary standard, which we can talk about understandable skepticism in the field about that as kind of a panacea for responsible use of technology. But we felt there was no actual like normative articulation that was global in purview in terms of who was involved in its production that set us kind of standard for what it means to create synthetic media responsibly. And we just put this out. I will, I will plug uneloquently uh, synthetic.media.partnershiponai.org. And in it, we designed it around kind of three stakeholder groups that we think are really important to this media integrity future. So the people building technology and infrastructure, so the open AIs or Adobe, who have a different kind of responsibility towards transparency or, um, you know, consent about data, et cetera, then let's say a a, a creator or a distributor like TikTok or the BBC. So we launched this a month ago with an inaugural cohort of 10 partners who are a microcosm of the broader field of media integrity, which includes OpenAI, Adobe, TikTok, the BBC, Bumble, the dating app, um, Witness, because you know Bumble, for example, might think about how women's images on their platform might be used as inputs to training non-consensual sexual deepfakes, for example. So we wanted to lend credence to this idea that there's like a multi, there are myriad actors who play a role in this notion of the AI field, and all have kind of a different responsibility in practice for operationalizing certain values. So if we care about transparency as a field, let's say for the end user. What should Adobe do to further transparency? But also, what should you do if you're tinkering in your room um, or apartment and trying to create something? So the general themes are around you know, basically like transparency, consent, moving beyond do no harm. And the hope is that all of these institutions will contribute kind of a case example 
each year. So we can't audit them or enforce them, though we do talk to policymakers who are very interested in this topic right now, as you can all imagine. And we want to kind of build out a body almost of like case law to better operationalize what it means for these institutions to codify and implement these ideas. So John, and and I mean, say first in the context, I, I you're the only investor I actually trust as a human being that I feel like the first thing you're looking at is, is this at least fun, if not actually good, right? I mean, it, and that's it's it's rare to, to speak with someone like this. So I want to kind of honestly ask, what what guidelines, if any, do you use in determining whether or not an AI investment is appropriate? Or does it ever get to that place where well, this, you know, how and how do you do you have a rubric yet? Have you have you worked that out? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, and I would. Um, you know, when you were talking about the uh, the grants, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that I think is profoundly uh, challenging and, uh, about this technology is we're seeing emergent properties uh, that are unexpected. And that sounds sort of glamorous, but it's not. It's weird. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why companies are saying they want to be able to have groups like you do research and i think that research we need a lot more research right there's not enough research happening uh inside of academia any longer uh because of the cost of these models uh so going to your question so so what kind of rubric so so we have we've tried uh and have gone through a whole set of frameworks just like sort of like is there a sort of Q&A framework? Is there a, is there a framework that you can actually put a company through? Um, and we haven't, we haven't successfully landed on anything. Um, and part of the problem is, is that, you know, we're, we're working with and investing in companies when they're at the seed stage. And so companies, just as they grow up, they change and they evolve. So you don't really know um, you know, how that evolution and what that path is going to look like. Now, there's some really black and white um, uh, examples that we do have under our belt. Um, you know, there was, um, gosh, if, I'm sorry, I'm really jet lagged. So there was a Vietnamese fellow who had... Clearview? Yes. Yeah, yeah, who came by with, you know, some of Giuliani's friends and pitched us Clearview when it was... A, and, you know, part of the the conversation that I had with him was, okay, how did you get all this data? You know, they were basically, they trolled, uh, they'd stolen a whole bunch of data from Facebook, image-based data, uh, images of people. And, um, you know, he explained to me how he'd done it and he was very technically proud of it. And that was kind of the end of the conversation for us. So, you know, us understanding integrity of data sources integrity of just like how do people act and think is a is a good initial filter but i'll give you one example of something which troubles me right now is that you know we we have taken a uh you know you can view simplistically the ai world as being there's a set of open companies and a set of closed companies complicated by the fact that the biggest one of the biggest closed companies is called open <laughs> uh so I'll just refer to them as OAI because they're not open. <laughs> um, and you can, you can 
take that rubric and say, okay, so the open companies sound like they're good. Uh, you know, we made an investment in a company called Stability um, that is, uh, has done an amazing job of taking initially these visual models, compressing them down, and taking models which OpenAI spent years and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, creating and Stability you know, last year created them for a fraction of the price and uh, created much, much smaller models, which is amazing. And you talk to the founder, Ahmad, of Stability, he wants to make all these models accessible to the world, right? He has a mission about, uh, you know, his view is, is that you know, these models that we're seeing today, the image-based models, language-based models, are inherently biased by the English language web and the sort of the, the web, which is predominantly images of white, predominantly male people. And he wants to be able to like have a diversity of models. So he's training models in India and he's train, training all. But, you know, can North Korea take his technology and use it? Uh, for whatever they want? Absolutely. Can Iran do that? Absolutely. And so because the technology is now out in the wild. So, so this presumption that, oh, open is going to be good does like sort of like you get some, it, it's not as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think personally that we need to, we need to find some, uh, some, organizational structure or combination of structures that is somewhere in between those open and closed, uh, but has a degree of transparency that we don't have in uh, a typical sort of corporate structure. So I I'm rambling, um, but it, the, we don't have a simple rubric. I think that being able to like, you know, I know this sounds naive, but well, not naive, it sounds simplistic, but just talking to somebody and understanding what their motivations are, I think gets you a long way. Um, you know, to date, we haven't made any awful mistakes. I'm sure we will, because, you know, companies change, leadership changes. And, um, you know, I mean, you talk to Roger McNamee, right? You know, he's, you know, he invested in Facebook uh, at the, in the early days of, uh, you know, believing in all the good intentions that he imputed on the team there. And then, you know, he ended up writing the Zucked book and, uh, you know, had a, ended up in a very different, with very different point of view of what Facebook was doing for society. So it's complicated. Yeah, but it's interesting what you're saying is that you're, you're, the way you make a choice about whether or not to invest in the technology is the people, there's the human. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah, as if that it's back to, it's back to us again. I mean, so, Could, yeah. I, John, maybe just uh, pressing that, uh, Hugging Face, um, interesting example, company in this space. Yeah. Um, and yet, when I look out at the sort of like smart ethics commentators on synthetic media, they're often Hugging Face, uh, you know, AI ethics people. Um, so is that an example that you'd give? That, look, that is, um, you know, Hugging Face, you know, company that started here. I mean, they were in one of our accelerator programs <coughs> and they spent their first six months of their time here. I think that they're doing a, a really good, I'm just going to moderate one. Yeah, a really good job of like finding that middle ground. Um, 
however, you know, I mean, they've had some profoundly difficult, you know, uh, issues, and I'm sure they will have more, right? There was a, I think there was a 4chan uh, model that was posted on Hugging Face, and they had to, like, figure out what do you do with that. So it was kind of a content moderation question. And they decided to take it down. Um, but, uh, you know, they they build themselves as a open marketplace for these models. So open should mean anybody can put what they want on there, and they decided that was not the case. So... Um, and then, and then when you think about the um, emergent properties of these models, you could have a model um, that you know, purports to do one thing but starts like sort of, you know, just the words here are so hard. I don't want to use the word evolve, but there's an emergent tendency to do that ends up doing something else that's entirely fucked up, right? <laughs> that's like that has no relationship to the... Uh, uh, to the initial intention, so so I think that it's uh, it's it's going to get really complicated. These it's, things it's they pivot right. themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And I think that we're. Um, I'm I'm glad we're having these conversations. I just think, though, as a society, as a species, we're actually not really well set up for this mm. because this kind of like hacks into. Like, uh, yeah, just like our, our belief systems, our structures, our like, you know, our intuitions, our dreams, our fantasies. Like, you know, since the beginning of time, yeah. right, we keep sort of like fantasizing about recreating, you know, species and, you know, and becoming gods. And mm. I think that all those fantasies are being played out in the most sort of like micro macro fucked up ways right now it's really it's kind of it's weird well if we want to want to go back to the maybe the last time we underwent <laughs> such a transition let's go back to the axial age right and the invention of text and we had you know uh moses and yithro in the desert after they got out of egypt and they wrote the law so as the editor of tech policy press um <laughs> I mean, you should be, I would think, scanning the landscape. Is anyone effectively thinking about how do we address this through the law, through policy? And are they, they doing a good job? So when you look out at um, the kind of policy landscape, you know, the EU uh, has its AI Act, which uh, should become law this year. Um, and a lot of people are already worried that it's in some way kind of, um, you know, built for sort of a past understanding of AI um, that's not sort of, you know, uh, properly contextualized in this generative AI moment. Um, the uh, UK just came out with a nice white paper uh, the other day, um, which kind of said, you know, let's promote innovation and let's not get in the way of these things. And we're not necessarily going to have to have a new agency, et cetera. Um, in the U.S., uh, we have no real plans uh, for any uh, artificial intelligence uh, regulation, but there is a lot of movement at the state level. Um, I think there's something like 17 states that have artificial intelligence um, uh, legislation under consideration in different ways. Um, but you're also seeing a lot of movement at the uh, regulatory level. So the Federal Trade Commission's made a lot of stirrings lately 
about AI, including uh, some you know very very well written blog posts um, about deceptive practices and generative AI and things like that. Um, and so there's, there's some sort of inkling that maybe some of these regulatory bodies might might uh, take a quick crack at it, particularly on the deceptive practices front. Um, and then the White House uh, has done various things that are at least the valence of which seems right. Um, the blueprint for uh, uh, a, a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. So not a Bill of Rights itself, or not an actual legislative recommendation or any any particular policy, but a blueprint uh, for, for perhaps how we should think about these things came out of the White House last fall. Um, NIST, the National Institutes of Science uh, and Technology, put out a uh, risk management framework, uh, which is actually a, a very long document, about 78 pages that I'm sure no one will read. But if you are a company that's working with AI, at least has some really good ideas in it about how you should think about risk, including some of these more profound risks that we're talking about. Um, so I guess my that's my long answer to your question, which is just to say it doesn't feel like um, we're anywhere close to having uh, a kind of uh, mature policy conversation about any of these things at in, in, on any level. The one country that seems to be actually the most – have the most robust response, the most concerned response, the most uh, – you know, it, it's China. Um, they are the company, uh, the country that has, uh, you know, <laughs> that has put put the most uh, profound um, constraints on, on AI on, on its tech firms, um, and they've they've sort of said basically, these companies and these technologies exist to serve the state, and uh, and thus the public, right? Um, and that's how it works. Whereas here we kind of say um, the state exists to serve these companies, right? That's that's we could argue about that whether that's true, but I'm, I'm supposed to be somewhat playing a sweary British journalist um, yeah. <laughs> over here, so I'll take her point of view. I'm sure she would she would appreciate that. So can I can I ask you? Yeah, maybe if, if I could give maybe each of you, maybe some people in the audience, yeah, um, uh, like one or two first principles. If you, you know, if Biden called you up and said, you know, yeah, what would you, what are the first principles you would apply? Mm -hmm. Like right to be forgotten mm -hmm. was like a principle, is a principle, right? Mm -hmm. um, what would you, you asking me first? Or yes. Clear? Either I'll, one of you. I have Let's one thing first. in my head and then I'll Keep give going. it to you. Um, I, I was talking to David about this the other day. Um, the glaring, glaring lack of any privacy protections in this country in an age of artificial intelligence, is uh, a prof should be a profound concern to anyone that lives in this in this in this country and, and anyone outside of it, um, because it is ultimately the the sort of nucleus of our our uh, our, our laissez-faire approach to all of this. The fact that um, there there are no protections essentially so data privacy. Yeah, I think all of the bad things you can imagine about AI are made worse uh, if. AI has access to um, incredible amounts of fine-grained data about individuals. So I don't know if this is part of that, but it's, it's someone phrased it as digital dignity. But I think I've my thinking has evolved on the extent to which you have ownership over your likeness in this era, or like your right, like your copyright, your your writing, your what you've produced, and also your physical appearance. If you're not a public figure and have like the right to publicity or those types of rules, so I'd say like your digital identity, like digital dignity or identity on online. 
That's really yeah. So that's kind of the it's the mirror image of the right to be forgotten. Sure. You now own the present. Yeah, you image. own the present image yeah. and representations, synthetic representations of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, I'd probably say the the recognition of non-utility value, mm. right? The recognition of uh, you know the right not to be auto-tuned. That there are there are uh, I have values for which there are not yet any metrics. And those have to be recognized even though we don't yet have metrics for them. And the things like sanctity or love or, you know, my, my uh, uh, essential, uh, essential value can't be ignored. Can I offer something that I've had an evolution on my thinking of too? So, um, you know, the company's reaction to what I just said is we give everyone the right to consent. And therefore, yeah, and I appreciate your, it's so nice to be in person for your eye roll. Um, I do that on Zoom too. So I appreciate a fellow eye roller. And I was talking to um, a colleague, Jillian, Jillian Hadfield, who I'm sure a lot of you know, and she totally, you know, I said informed consent is part of our framework. And she said, I think that's ridiculous. You know, when you walk into a restaurant, you don't give consent that they may give you salmonella. There's regulation. So then I, this blew my mind and I felt really ignorant. You, you, you know that they're regulated from food, food safety regulations and you're probably not going to get salmonella when you walk in that restaurant. Now, my rebuttal was, well, it's a lot clearer to know you have salmonella from a test than from some of the harms online that are much more debatable. But her point held to me, which was, you know, this notion of informed consent being the solution to everything and giving, you know, power to the people. There is some threshold where we might say, actually, no, you can't use your face, even if you say, I really want you to use your face in this context. So that's something I've definitely been thinking about as it relates to informed consent. And what does that even mean in certain contexts for you to be an empowered um you know, do you understand AI enough to, you know, give grant consent to what it means for that computer to store that image of you for the rest of your life and beyond? So- yeah, I think that, sorry, I think that there's a real, uh, there's a long history of computers and software, you know, <clears throat> using, um, using systems of consent to basically, uh, you know, structure defaults around whatever they want mm-hmm. and whatever their business models demand. And so I think that that is uh, pushing this back on the user is so broken. Exactly. Yeah, I was just going to say my students always hear me talk about the supply and demand side solutions. And in this country, we push the demand side solutions for everything. Don't smoke, don't eat junk food, don't forward. It's all your fault as opposed to the more European or Chinese look. But what I wanted to know was what, where, where's the overlap and where the differences between the kinds of codes of conduct that your organization is promoting and the legislation? So one area is in this, I mean, it maybe goes back to your idea of empowering people to grasp what's going on. And I'll, I'll give a really amazing anecdote. So this notion of transparency and what it means. And the word meaningful gets thrown around a lot because sticking a, you know, AI was used here label on everything that no one can see is not meaningful disclosure and actually studying how people interpret this awareness or disclosure. So I'd say many of the I think part of it has to do with this fact that there's so much uncertainty about what's actually going on behind the hood, too, that transparency gets touted in every, you know, the algorithm. I think even in, in um, 
your every algorithmic auditing mechanism, they're all about showing your work, showing what you did so that we could then maybe get to some value judgment about if that was good or bad. But there's nothing that's like, you know, you must do this in order to get forward. I'd say that, you know, transparency is one area. There are certain categorizations. And actually this came up as you were talking because I think often people fixate on explicit AI um, legislation. And I'm often like, you have to look in many different domains because even Section 230, which we all know that debate is very AI relevant, is not ostensibly about AI in particular. It's about whether or not these platforms are publishers. Of course, we know that AI powers these platforms, but that's a kind of online speech question and very relevant to your class. But that's not an AI law. It emerged right. before AI. So, or even in, in New York, a lot of the deepfake law is explicitly about revenge porn and has precedent in the revenge porn space. It's not precedent in the AI space. It's precedent in that. And I think oftentimes when we're thinking about AI policy, I also am like, you also better be paying attention to labor law if you're thinking about the future of work or copyright law, if you're thinking about what it means for there to be AI art in this day and age. So um, I sometimes like feel a little stressed out when all the AI policy people, I'm like, are you paying attention to basically this technology touches everything? So every policy space might need to be attentive to this. So overlap is really, I think, on transparency. And there's, you know, a huge open question as to how people actually interpret that. We did, I'm just going to add one anecdote because it's fun and I'm sorry if you've heard me yeah. say this before. I've probably used it a lot because I still laugh at it. We did a user study of a sample of people across the U.S. from different ends of the political spectrum. And we showed them Twitter's manipulated media label, which is their method of transparency. Very visceral you know, we like telling people that this is manipulated media. And when we talked to a Republican in our sample pool, he goes, and we asked him what he thought about it. He goes, I thought it was Twitter telling me the media as in like the institution was manipulating me. <laughs> and we were like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? And it was just such a potent example of like this noble intent around transparency in the hands of someone who comes to this with a preconceived notion about Twitter or about the AI algorithm being biased is not going to care about any of these mechanisms for transparency as it relates to the disinformation potential or the like. So overlap is around transparency, but what that means in practice, that's what I find. I'm curious if you have thoughts as well. I wanted to maybe just slightly go down a, a, a rabbit hole that you opened up, a uh, potential one around Section 230. Um, there, there's a really interesting kind of debate going on, and it's very early days kind of debate where it's not exactly clear if anyone knows what they're talking about um, on any side of it. Um, but at least from my perspective, um, having talked to some of the experts that are trying to puzzle this out, um, but there's a big question that that uh, the tech industry is 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 struggling with a little bit. Like, when uh, what is ChatGPT? Is it an information uh, intermediary? Is it a publisher? Um, are you the information provider when you enter a search string or a, a sorry, a prompt into a uh, chat GPT box? Um, how will the law uh, consider those things? And actually this Supreme Court case in Gonzalez v. Google um, that will be decided probably before this class is over, maybe, maybe sometime this summer, um, 
will have a huge bearing potentially on the answer to that question and the way that um, we end up looking at. So one of the things I was going to say is um, some of the things that we're still litigating, literally litigating uh, at the Supreme Court about the kind of last era of technology could end up having hugely definitive uh, impact on this next era of technology on purpose or not, right? I don't think, and, you know, as Justice Elena Kagan said, we're not the nine, you know, greatest experts on the internet. Um, I don't think that the nine greatest experts on AI, and they're not necessarily thinking about it, although Neil Gorsuch did bring up uh, generative AI in the Supreme Court um, argument around Gonzalez. But one of the things I just add to that, and I'll, and I'll shut up, is pay attention to the language, the words that you're hearing right now. I think it's very interesting. Prompt engineer. What does that mean, right? People are being paid to be prompt engineers, apparently, right? Um, I, I'm very interested in that word because it kind of it's it's it seems new, right? Relatively new. What does it mean? Um, hallucination, right? We, we're using it, you know, and you're being you're trying to be very careful. I, I try to be careful, but hallucination. What does it mean? What we're actually talking about is a system that's predicting a string of words in response to a string of words that's been given. It's not hallucinating. It's just making shit up, right? Um, and then we call uh, it, it when it egregiously makes shit up, uh, or we can tell that it's make shit, making shit up, we'll call that hallucination, right? For, for whatever reason. I heard someone say recently, like, there's nothing artificial about it. It's all from human data. It's all derived from human data, like AI, artificial intelligence. It's not intelligent and it's not artificial. It's all from human but, but these, ingenuity. But, but the it, thing about prompt engineering as a word, it actually has bearing on the Section 230 debate. Because if the prompt engineer is the information provider, if he is the prime mover, right, uh, the instigator, uh, the, with, without whom there could be no output, right, then perhaps I might buy that argument that ChatGPT is, uh, is, is an information intermediary and not itself. Uh, well, its know, output provider. is not – you can't copyright it. That's right. Right? So that means something. Well, I mean so – as long as we have time, I'm wondering, uh, we all saw or even uh, – did you guys uh, help write the uh, moratorium thing? No? But, but I mean, you were, when you started talking about the, the sort of kingpins of AI, I mean, they're all sort of listed on there, it, which immediately made me not want to sign on to it. Just on some – you know, because I'm not like you – know, once your we, name is on there – Should we be sure right? everyone knows what the letter right. is? Yeah. So yeah. there's um, – maybe you want to um, explain – do you want to explain it? Maybe. Or – John, you want to explain it? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I was traveling, so I'm not exactly sure of the threads here, but, um, you know, Tristan Harris and Azar Askin at the Center for Humane Tech uh, did a series of events, one here in New York, one in D.C., one in San Francisco, one in San Francisco's on their podcast. Pretty good discussion of some of the potential impacts of this. They then did a op-ed with Harare, uh, which was in the Times, I think, about two weeks ago. And then the petition slash moratorium called for a pause of the training of GPT-5, which is currently under train. Um, and uh, basically, it's, uh, somewhat reminiscent of like, Trump saying, <laughs> let's 
stop all what did Trump say? Let's stop all immigration until yeah, we know what the, what the fuck is going on, right? It's sort of a little bit of that overtone to it. Um, look, I, I think that the... So I signed it because I think that we have... Uh, we have one company that is... Uh, has a very opaque governance structure around it. Uh, you, I wake up some days and I think it's a division of Microsoft, and other days it seems like an independent company, somewhere in between those two things. Uh, it is a company that has uh, you know, publicly stated that they believe these large language models that you know, a year ago we were referring to as machine learning are now on a straight line to a artificial general intelligence or superintelligence. I, I do not personally believe that, but let's take them at their face value. Let's just say Sam Altman's right and he believes this and it's not just a sort of Silicon Valley uh, you know, marketing pitch. If we actually believe we're creating a, a general intelligence of some form, is this how I would want it to be created? And is this the way that we can actually, you know, have a conversation that brings in many, many more constituents in society around what this is and what we want it to do and how it will impact society? It is not, yeah, that's just not happening. So I think that putting a pause for me is just a way of saying, Let's actually uh, give a you know, strong voice, hopefully, to say, let's step back and uh, really understand what these models are doing. And specifically, you know, I think about like the open web, right? There's, there's a presumption, I mean, you're talking about the legal construct for it, but the presumption that we can farm the open web, like it is a resource that is like, you know, that all, all of the words we have collectively written into all of those random websites are just like a resource to be farmed and to be recycled into a proprietary algorithm that is then resold and has absolutely no ability to uh, offer any attribution uh, is to me is just like that is a that ain't right. I mean, the, the amazing thing to me about it was I, it's a, a, a for at least at the top of the signatories are a, a group of pedal to the metal, techno libertarian, effective altruist Mars travelers saying, whoa, you know, the same week that they say, oh, Silicon Valley Bank. Well, now we need government to bail out this thing in our wonderful free. It's like, whoa, this is I mean, on, on, on one sense, it's an opportunity, right, for the policy people to say, good, welcome. Welcome home, son. We'll teach you about how to do things. Things deliberately. Um, did your organization yeah, first sign I'm curious, um, how many of you, if you could be in charge or wave a magic wand, would pause for six months the AI creation? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious why afterward, but I'll answer too. How, what about uh, you wouldn't, you wanted to keep going, if you can raise your hand. I like the wishy-washy gesture. Um, any wishy-washy, we'll give you a chance to raise your hand for real with conviction. Anyone who's not sure. Okay, me too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll offer my thoughts. Um, and also, so 
I actually said this, I'm from New York and my parents went to Queens College. So if anyone went to Queens College in the audience, welcome. It's in my blood. Um, I actually think there's a really intense, we were talking about this too, cultural difference in terms of the people in Silicon Valley and even the people working on the same problems here. And I kind of use this as the kind of chasm in the AI field. On the West Coast, I'm just going to present this very simplistically. There's the long-termist AGI, what you just described, effective altruist, uh, libertarian, uh, and I'd say a few people with a cult of personality that fit this. It's this Tristan, and I, you know, I admire a lot of the some of the ideas of a lot of these people. But Elon Musk, um, in a different field, Sam Bankman-Fried, but he bankrolled a lot of the innovation in the AI field that's trying to create this long-term general intelligence that we've talked about. And there's a very kind of narrow set of parameters with which they think about this long-term future. Then there's people who are fixated on narrow AI, which is like here and now, how is it causing job discrimination or how is it affecting different minority groups? And I'll be very frank and say, I interact with both of these people and I'm actually a little confused how they can't get, just get along because they're asking the same questions, in my opinion, at a different time scale, which of course implicates how they do things. But I think through some of the interventions that the long-term community might be proposing, they might also serve the interests of the near-term uh, future. So there's a lot of just cultural campishness. I personally, I'll say my organization tries to bridge these um, attitudes, which I think oftentimes there is a moralistic black and white. But in this instance, I do think having these groups talk to each other and work together and affect the policy decisions together is more meaningful than anyone dictating the trajectory. That's one thing. But because I think the letter was led with some of these individuals and by an institution that ideologically has a bend towards one very far end of that spectrum, it has not been read in good faith by the other end of that spectrum. And I'm not trying to, I'm not demonizing any of these groups, not out of diplomacy, but out of, I think there's merit to, to a lot of their ideas. So in my mind, we didn't sign on as an institution some of that, I'll be frank with this group, probably is, you know, they don't, There, a lot of people agree with the complexity I'm saying. I think some hate the letter at my institution. Some love it. That's why I think it's cool to work there. Um, and for me, largely, I kind of say, why not pause for six months? Great. You know, let's work with policymakers. Let's, you know, we couldn't resolve the perfect answer for transparency and those things. So let's buy some time before it gets more sophisticated and the impact might be amplified, period, good or bad. Um, but I think the issue is it was not taken in good faith. There's a ton of intensity of feeling, I'll be very frank, on a lot of the sides. And it's a more polarized field, which I actually don't think is a great posture for result. That's why it's, you know, I'm happy we're having this conversation, too, because um, it's uncertain. So I agree with a lot of the points in the letter that lean towards like data governance, transparency, some of the same themes, but maybe in a less hyperbolic or dramatic way. <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, that's a really interesting, a really important divide in terms of the, the tech concern people. Because I always end up more on the kind of the, the Bernie BLM, what are the algorithms, you know, leading to the carceral state? And then like, oh, no, the Tristan sort of thing is like, oh, well, that's, that doesn't matter. But yeah, we're all, in some sense, we're all on the same side here. Yeah. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one. It's it's nice to sort of break that to, to break that down like that. I haven't heard I haven't heard someone do that. Um, there there are two questions. I know we're we're pushing on on our time here. Um, there there are two questions I want to ask, particularly because of this of this course. One, I don't understand Italy 
has like banned ChatGPT or something? How can a country ban something? I mean, do they, I don't even understand technically what happened. I don't know if any of you do that they made. Do you understand what happened that that you're not allowed to use it there? That they, they come in your house and <laughs> stop you? What happens? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know a bit. I don't know enough. But there was basically a data leak issue. And so I think it goes directly to oh. the privacy issues that you're talking about. I'll call on David if, uh, if he wants to clarify. Let me see if I get this right. Um, basically, Italy's, uh, Italy's uh, data regulator um, said that because of privacy concerns and the opacity of the training data and the uncertainty about what the hell OpenAI has uh, in its systems, essentially, um, that it was calling on uh, OpenAI to uh, essentially um, not make ChatGPT available in Italy, uh, which is what the company agreed to do. So they essentially blocked the provision of ChatGPT. So you got to get one of those Italy. VPN things if you're in Yeah, Italy. is that correct? Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they processed the data of Italian. Right, without, without, right, and, yeah. and that's what I meant is that it's about Italian, uh, Italian people's data, uh, which would have been hoovered up into uh, the training set for uh, GPT. Then, then, and and for our class in particular, I know this is hard, and it's so close that maybe there's no difference. But do you see um, AI impacting the 2024 election cycle in ways that we haven't? yet thought about i mean is there is there something else that's going to be happening now i i mean i think that there's you know when you go back to emily's uh post op-ed uh just the you know the or the auto creation of massive amounts of uh of anything uh from advertising to fake news i think that you know we're seeing i mean I think this chapter is really the end of the open web. Um, and I know that sounds kind of dramatic and so on, but I think that the web uh, is, you you will have the paid web over here, and so, which will be paywalled and gated. And then you just, the open web, I think, you know, will increasingly resemble, you know, sort of walking down the aisle at CVS where you kind of like, Halfway down the aisle, you just say, "Why am I here? Why, why do I have something in my hand that I didn't even know I wanted?" <laughs> you know, it's just a sort of like a sea of promotional sh stuff. But in a in a media space that is a sea of promotional stuff and fake stuff, won't that uh, 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 re return us to the sort of the the primacy and importance of institutional media of the good old BBC and NPR and New York Times and Fox. <laughs> so I don't know exactly how to answer that question. I mean, I'll say you mentioned I'm a doctoral candidate. I don't usually advertise that, but I am really interested in, in we're in a university environment, so I will. I'm really interested in certain institutions that are very trusted, like museums, um, for example, which continue to be pretty trusted, like and what we can learn from them about that could be replicated somehow in terms of the governance of AI, but that's a whole aside. So I think there are interesting precedents of spaces that are um, institutionally trusted. I will say my, I don't think, unfortunately, that those brands will usurp the kind of polarization that already exists and um, swoop in to help. Um, one of the examples I give, I have I work very closely with people at OpenAI and they've been getting a lot of pushback being told they're producing chat DNC. 
because it has a liberal bent. And I just really feel strongly that the hyper-polarization that plagues the filter bubble algorithmic recommendation world will um, be amplified when you can choose your own chat GPT that tweak it with different parameters so that you can kind of have it move in this direction. And I think that's potentially a natural response from an institution like OpenAI who's going to be dealing with a complicated congressional chat ecosystem. Chat QAnon. Yeah. yeah, and I... Um, I guess that's one worry. And we I don't know if you guys have talked about the liar's dividend. I'll, 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 I don't know if you all are familiar with that concept, but the premise that just the notion that you know there's a lot of fake content about, out there makes you skeptical of real material. So we already, I, one could argue we've already hit that threshold without AI. And the introduction of AI just makes it so much easier to claim that things are fake that are real, which is um, what scares me probably more. So... Those two things, I guess, I think could deeply implicate the election, though people would say maybe we've hit the threshold for it's, you know, already this kind of divided and disparate media ecosystem. I mean, I think that's that grim, the, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the the, uh, you, you know, people talk about like Zuckerberg and others talk about the, the metaverse as though it's a place like a uh, like a, a VR experience that we're going to all enter. I think we're already living in a metaverse of just of uh, information networks, where our sort of consciousness is already a, a piece of our mind lives on these devices, lives in these networks, and I think that these um, you know. We haven't we haven't talked about the biggest AI service out there, like fully commercialized, you know, TikTok. Hmm. Um, that I think is you know far more fun than reading the New York Times, uh, just scrolling and doom scrolling, clicking and just you know watching videos. And so so I think that we're entertaining ourselves in, in with this, and it's um, you know. It's successfully designed to like get to a lot of lower brainstem behavior that you know, reading the New York Times doesn't quite do. And so I don't think that, I mean, I think it's a nice fantasy that we, you know, in this world of like of sort of metaverse entertainment, you know, other spaces, we're going to like all revert to a sort of old school uh, sort of like sit there with our Sunday Times. <laughs> like, um, I just don't think it's happening. And I want to open it up to everybody, but, but let me ask one, one last question of my own. I mean, I was going to ask, what's your, what's your dream and nightmare of the future of AI? But let's just stay positive. What's the, your, greatest, your greatest hope, um, your greatest dream for this technology, and what uh, would help us bring that about as opposed to some of this other dark stuff we've been talking about? I mean, do you have a positive fantasy this is going to sound so silly, so forgive me. But I mean, when you started talking about the things that you felt make you inherently human, like love, like all of those details, I really think it's a useful tool for enabling people to actually differentiate what really, I've never thought of matters to them and what is distinct about humanity. I actually, I came to this field from a cognitive science background and interest in human behavior. And I think you can learn a lot about you at the individual level and societal level through this conversation. So that's not a specific, you know, you'll work less or whatever, no, but I think it enables us to actually be, frankly, very introspective about 
deeply human questions. Yeah. I, I think that um, to, to that end, I mean, I think that it also helps us hopefully distinguish what our form of intelligence is and what is human versus what is machine. And so uh, I think that that would be a hope I have. I, I think in any specific domain, but you just, I mean, the easiest ones, obviously, areas of, uh, of science and research. Um, you know, the ability uh, of, of this to, you know, we've already seen, uh, you know, cases where I, I talked about the emergent behavior or the emergent stuff had kind of been scary and weird, but, you know, it, it has um, done everything from find antibiotics to, uh, you know, there's, I sp think specifically there was an E. coli antibiotic which was developed. Uh, and, you know, basically the AI or, or the machine learning sort of went through massive amounts of data and emergently came up with this solution. And doctors looked at it and said, that won't work. And yet it worked. I, it, it turns out that the, I mean, I think that the example from Go and from AlphaGo is really instructive is that human beings, uh, we, we, we tend to be incredibly reductive about the problem space. And so when you take a particular problem, whether it's climate change or whether it's like antibiotics, I, I think we're going to be, you know, we're like looking really hard at this small space here and the ability that these models have to basically massively enlarge in that space and go you know, out and help us like, you know, I know it sounds mundane, but in the case of Go, right, they fundamentally figured out a different strategy that nobody had thought of. And they've been playing Go for, we've been playing Go for 2000 years, not me personally, but our species. And there was like new strategy. That's kind of incredible, right? So I think that that is, that's where so much of the promise lies. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm not an Elon Musk fan, but that's what I always thought he meant when he brought the kitchen sink to Twitter on the first day. Well, I think that's what he was doing, was saying it's like that game of Go. This is, let's try shit that we wouldn't normally think of, but maybe maybe I'm projecting. But um, I want to let, let John sleep. Um, yeah, you've, you've, given, you've been a, such a great host, a host not just with your place, but with your brain thank and you. heart. And thank you so much. And thank you, Claire. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Yay. And that's about where we ended the main conversation before another hour of raucous questions and comments from the students. You can find out more about John Borthwick, Claire Leibowitz, and Justin Hendricks by checking out the links to Betaworks, PAI, and Tech Policy Press in our show notes, as well as some recent articles that they've all written. A special shout out to Betaworks sound engineer Sam Stein for making us a recording of this conversation. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.